the bulletin, great. If not, the ushers are moving through the auditorium to give you some of those notes. Just raise your hand they'll go uh, as they go through and they will hand you some notes so you can follow the Gospel of John chapter 4. As we're starting this morning, I want you to think with me for a moment this idea. There are times when we get distracted with small things and we miss the big things around us, or the big picture, if you would, that we can get fixated like in this cartoon on something small and miss that there's some danger nearby. It happens in all areas of life. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Back in 1962, there was a group of town leaders in this town in Wilkinsburg, PA, out in the western part of our state. They knew that their centennial was coming up. And so they wanted to, at the 75th anniversary, to start planning for the centennial. So they got permission to get this expensive time capsule. They got a whole variety of different things that would represent the town from the past and the present. And then they were going to bury it and make it part of their great celebration in 25 years. They were fearful that there would be some people in town who were, who were going to try to find the capsule, who had threatened to get it, to sell it, to sell some of the items in. So in order to protect themselves from any of those crooks, any of those who would do vandalism, the townsmen, the four of them, they, the town's leader, they decided that they would secretly bury it somewhere in town and only the four of them would know where it's buried. Problem was, they didn't think of the big picture. The big picture is... People die, like town's leaders. So by the 100th anniversary, all four of them were dead and buried and never told anybody where this time capsule was. They missed the big picture because they were focused in on this one event at that moment. I'll give you an illustration. 1942, the Germans have asked Porsche company to develop the biggest, best tank possible. They developed a tank that they called the Mouse. The statistics are up there. 20 feet high, 50 feet long, 1,200 horsepower engine, 13 and a half inch stick steel plating. The thing was massive, as you can see by the comparison to a typical American tank at that time, compared to the mouse. And so when they did the, the testing in the test environments, things went well. But when they now were going to display it before all the military brass, they took it out into normal conditions. They found out there was a problem. The problem was, as it went down the roads, it destroyed the roads. The buildings would shake. Windows would break. And then, during their test procedure, they decided they were told by the military brass, take it and see how it maneuvers in a field. Soon as it left the road, it buried. It was a machine that could not go on normal turf or area. They were so focused on big that they forgot the bigger picture. Was it practical? Was it functional? Give you a story. Down in Texas, back in the mid-60s, this disc jockey had heard that it reports that people, especially in the Texas area and his region, they were reading less and less and less. And reading skill was being affected by it. So he wanted to do a promotion to help people to read. So he went down to the local library into the, uh, which section? The fiction section, and he hid $20 bills in the book racks. Then he announced that afternoon on his radio station that he has hidden money, cash money, down in the library, the public library. If you go down there and find it, it's yours. Take out the book, find the money. And his idea was people would take, them, take the books and read them. So the librarian tells the story that right about 5 o'clock, all of a sudden, dozens of people came in. Within an hour, there was over 500 people that came in. 3,200 books were destroyed as people went through the racks. Even book racks were tipped over. People weren't reading the books. They were shaking them out, looking for the $20 bills. Afterwards, somebody had to pay for all of this. Disc jockey learned the hard way that you end up advertising something like this, you're going to pay for it. He forgot the big picture in light of something small he had in mind. There was a group of students, their teacher had visited some of those caves in France where they have what's, what they declare as Neanderthal uh, writings, but those cave dwellers at one time in history that were there. And she saw that in some of the areas, there had been some graffiti. It bothered her. So she went back to her high school class, and they talked about it, and they decided that they would go and clean off the graffiti. So they go to the caves, and they have the Brillo pads, they have the the soaps, and they're cleaning off the graffiti. 
They got so excited cleaning the caves that they started taking off the original paintings that were hundreds of years old. They were focused in on the little picture. They lost sight of the big picture. Oh, it happens all the time. That we can get distracted by the little things and we forget the big, most important things. That's what Jesus is dealing with in John chapter 14. Or John 4, excuse me. John chapter 4, it's a story you're very familiar with. I am shocked that this year during a missions conference, nobody preached on it. I'm also delighted because I was planning on preaching this after our missions conference. And so I was kind of praying nobody would preach it so that I'd have this opportunity for you and I to wind up our whole thoughts about missions this morning and this evening before we get back to our normal type of, of Bible studies. And I want to take a time to just help you and me to just reflect upon what Jesus is doing in John 4 as he's trying to get individuals. One is a woman at the well, and the others are, include all 12 of his disciples to see and to think about the big picture. Or should we put it in, a, in a, the, the proper way? The biggest picture of all. Because so often, like the disciples, we do the same thing. Like the woman, we can get all caught up with what we think is big events in life, but we forget the bigger, biggest events of life. That's what he's doing. Let's set the scene. Let's talk about where the context of this story. If you're unfamiliar with the text, and a lot of you do know this, but bear with me for those who are unfamiliar with the setting and the time of the story. In John chapter 4, we read in verse 1, these comments. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then he comes to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. That is very, very important information. It's not just background thrown in there because they needed to fill in space. It's got some very important details. The details kind of go this way. This is early in Jesus' ministry, in the early months. John is yet to be arrested. They are both ministering. In fact, Jesus had gone down in chapter 2 and part of chapter 3. He had gone to the first Passover. He has three different Passovers in his lifetime, or in his years of ministry, excuse me. And so he's, this is the first one. The first Passover. This is shortly after he did his first miracle at the wedding of Canaan. He had gone down to, to uh, Jerusalem, celebrated the Passover, and then he stayed in that region for a period of time. And you read about it in John chapter 3, starting verse 22, that he's preaching in the wilderness, same places that John is preaching. And his disciples are baptizing some individuals as well. Jesus doesn't do the baptism, but he has his disciples do it. You read about that in John chapter 3, down in verse 22, 23. 24. And there's the, the discussion that is going on. In fact, Jesus starts getting more of the crowds and John's disciples. This is the time they ask, wait a minute, he's stealing all of our crowds, John. What's going on? And John has to respond that basically he's going to say, you know, that he is just the friend of the groom. He's not the bridegroom. And that whole very, very informative text that John teaches his disciples that he's about promoting people and sending them to Jesus. And so then Jesus, after he's there for a while and he realizes that he's getting more and more pressure and opposition from the Pharisees in that area, he's going to leave. He's going to go back to his home area. If you look at the map, they're down in the southern part, the light green. He's going to go to the light green at the top. He's going to go to Galilee, back into the Nazareth, and the Capernaum, Cana area. And so he's going to go back up there where he won't have as much opposition. He's not as ministered up there too much at this, up to this point. And he's going to have to travel. Now he says, I must needs go through Samaria. Now you have to understand, and let me back up, Samaria is that purple, light purple right in the middle. And so he's going to go through that area, direct straight shot up north, which is very abnormal. To understand this story, to understand even the story of um, the Good Samaritan, you need this tidbit of information that I want to share with you. Samaria... And it was filled with people who were hated by the Jews. They were individuals that the Jews hated, and they hated the Jews. Their history starts back in about 700 years before Jesus, when all of a sudden the Assyrians had come in and invaded that region that was occupied by the ten northern tribes of Israel. The Assyrians came in, and they took away those ten northern tribes. In their place... They brought in others from other parts of the world. This was the way the Assyrians managed the 
entire known world that they had conquered. They would displace people. They would mix them up. The idea is you wouldn't have a concentration of any group of people. You'd mix these people with those people. That way they couldn't form an alliance. They couldn't speak to one another. And in time, they would just get used to each other and they'd start intermarrying and you break down nationalism. You break down backgrounds and they just kind of filter into just the big group of the Assyrians. So they brought in people to live amongst the remnant of the Jews that they had left up there. They'd taken away all the political leaders, the military leaders, the, um, the rich people and a lot of the middle and upper class. And so they had left the poorer classes there and these others, they moved in and they start intermixing. They start, you getting together with marriages, getting together with their small communities. And they form what's called mixed races, mixed religions. And that group of blended half-breed Jews become known as the Samaritans. A few hundred years later, the Jews come back. They're trying to rebuild the area. And they do it under Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah want nothing to do with the Samaritans. They're half-breeds. They don't believe the same thing. They have mixed Jehovah worship with pagan worship. The response of being rejected by, by Nehemiah and Ezra, the Samaritans go and they build their own temple. As they've rebuilt the temple under Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra down in the south, the Samaritans go back into their home region because they've been rejected and they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim and they form their own priesthood. They have their own scriptures. They take the, some of the first five books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and they've now got a blended Jewish and pagan religious system that they are putting together up in that region. And so they move up there and then and that creates even more animosity. Uh, 300 years later, the Jews, they have independence. They, f they fight. And what's happening about that time is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the Jewish people who have thrown off the shackles, they move up north and they're going to get rid of the Samaritans. They're going to get after them because they have this false temple. And the Jews are starting to revive their religion and they're, they're really gung-ho at this point, very zealous. And they take a group of raiders and they go up north and they destroy the temple in, in Mount Gerizim. Now that's a hundred years before Jesus. But the after effects are still there. The Samaritans still hate the Jews for coming and destroying their temple, which they never rebuild. They, in fact, just a few years before Jesus comes on the scene, the Samaritans come south. And they're going to get even with the Jews. They stand on the outside of the temple and they throw dead carcasses over the wall or through the gate. And they defile the entire temple during one of the highlights of Passover. This is when Jesus is alive, when he's a young person. So the, the animosity is growing. I mean, the Jews and the Samaritans hate each other. This is generational. They just despise each other. And so the Jews write about the Samaritans, and they describe them this way. They're unclean from the, gra from the cradle. It's not like somebody who gets leprosy or somebody who does something wrong. The Samaritans are just plain evil and bad and unclean because they're Samaritans. They're born that way. They're just evil, rotten people. They're unclean. They're worse than lepers. And so what happens is the Jews, by the time Jesus is coming and traveling, most of the people who would travel from Galilee would not go into Samaritan territory. They're not touching it. If they touch their territory, they'd be unclean, especially when they're headed to or from Passover or to or from some, some festival. They're not going to go through their land. They're not going to be defiled by those people. In fact, what they typically do is they travel across the river of Jordan as you follow the Yellow Arrow, and they bypass Samaria, Samaria altogether. That's the route of all the Jewish pilgrims. But not Jesus. Jesus has to be different. Jesus decides and he says to his disciples, we're going to take a straight path. We're going straight into Samaria and I'm going to st we're going to stop somewhere. In fact, he stated he must needs go through Samaria. He is burdened. There is somebody there he needs to talk to. Some people he wants to minister to. It's, it's an opportunity he's not going to bypass. So he breaks with tradition and he travels from Jerusalem, well actually a little bit between Jerusalem and Jericho, and in the wilderness area and heads straight towards Sychar as he's going to do a beeline straight through the whole territory. But he stops at Sychar. That's where our story picks up.
that Jesus is there and he's going to get into a conversation with the Samaritan woman. You know about the conversation. It happens in the village of Sychar, which is, it, it's, it's a small little village. It's where Joseph had been buried, Joseph of the Old Testament. So it's, it's a popular place. It's, something, it's a place that for Jews and for even the Samaritans, half-Jews, they've got the, the sepulcher of Joseph there. And so Sychar is an important spot in their history, but the Jews are avoiding it for the most part. And so Jesus stops there, he's thirsty, and it makes it very clear as you read through the text that it goes on in verse 6, the well was there, Jesus therefore weary from the journey, sat thus on the well, and it's about noontime. The sixth hour. And so Jesus is very clear. He's, he's God. He knows what's going to happen. He's planning to go there. But at the same time, he's got his human uh, frailties. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He needs to be refreshed. And about that time, this woman comes up. Now, the disciples have left, as you read the story. They leave so that they go and get food. And then there comes, verse 7, a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me some water. The disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. So it's just Jesus and this woman. Then says the woman, to the, Samaria, uh, the woman of Samaria to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, would ask drink of me, which am a woman? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. She knows. He knows. And he's not being rude by asking for the water. That would be normal type of thing. He would ask whoever's there, who's, you know, the woman from the community. It's their well to determine who gets the water. So he's basically saying, can I please have a cup of water? And she says, why are you talking to me? Jews don't talk to Samaritans. Why are you talking to me? Men in public typically don't talk to ladies in public that they don't know, especially a rabbi, a teacher. Yeah, and Jesus has followers. They may have passed. She may have passed his followers, and so she's she's, you know, really put off, just surprised that he would talk to her. By the way, if you look further in the passage, when the disciples come back, they're surprised too that he's talking to this woman because it says in verse twenty-seven, upon this came his disciples, and they marvel that he talked with this woman, but none of them dared say, "What are you doing? Why are you talking to her?" That'd be disrespectful. He's the master. But they're all thinking the same way. He's breaking with culture, with tradition. And they have this conversation. Now, in this conversation, let's set the scene. The woman is there because she's thirsty. She's thirsty for water. Jesus is thirsty for water. But he takes this thirst for physical water and he brings it into a spiritual mode. Watch the words that their conversation. Then we'll make some application. Where it says... Verse 9, you know, why we have no dealings. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says this to you, give me to drink, you would have asked him that he would give you living water. The woman says, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I knew who you were, I'd ask you to give me water. You don't even have a bucket to draw out of the well. From whence are you saying you're going to give me water that will keep my life going? Are you greater than our father Jacob who dug this well, where, which gave us the well and drank there of himself and his children? Can, can you do better than Jacob in getting water out of here with some magical way? Jesus says, whosoever drinks of this water thirsts again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never ever thirst. But the water which I give shall be in him a wellspring of, uh, be a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And he switches from the physical water to the spiritual water that gives eternal life. And the woman is going to say, well, that's true. Sir, give me this water that I may never thirst again, neither come to draw water. She's missing the point. She's saying, give me water so I, I don't want to come back here again. It'll be a lot easier if I don't have to draw water. Give me something that you have, this fountain of youth, that you can give me physical water that I will never ever be thirsty again. Ha, 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 ha. Give it to me. And Jesus is going to respond to her by saying to her, go and call your husband. And, uh, and then come thither. And she's kind of sheepish. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, hmm, that's true that you have no husband, for you've had five of them. And he that's living with you now, he's not your husband. So you spoke the truth. And the woman goes, whoops, you know all about me. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. You, you, you know my life. This is amazing. And then she tries to change the subject. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You guys say that Jerusalem is the place to worship where men ought to worship. And Jesus said, lady, 
Believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither worship in this mountain, nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. For worship you know not what. You, you worship what you know not what. For we know what we worship, for salvation is coming through the Jews. But the hour comes, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman is amazed by what he is saying and his theological knowledge. And he says, I know that the Messiah will come. Maybe that's what you're referring to, the hour comes. When the Messiah comes, which is called the Christ, and when he has come, he will tell us all things. He will tell us all things. He knows all about us. He knows what we need. And Jesus said, I that speak unto you am he. Let's just put it up. Okay. This woman has an emptiness in her life. Okay, it's, it's more than just water. She has an emptiness that's very apparent in her life that she is seeking for something to satisfy. She's trying to find it in multiple relationships. Uh, folk, going through five husbands at that time was very, very, very rare. Okay? Either she is the black widow and knocking them off, or she is not finding satisfaction in these relationships and she is looking for more. She is looking for love. She's looking for compassion. She's looking for peace of heart and mind. She is so driven that if she can have peace by a cup of water that I would never have to come back to this well again. Give me that. So I don't want to come back here. Why doesn't she want to come to the well? Because she has to come to the well at high noon because of what? She's rejected by the people around her. She can't come when the other ladies come. She's a social outcast because she has all these guys. She has this history of being a live-in gal right now. She's rejected in her community. She's looked down upon by her community. And she wants anything and everything. She wants the men, the relationship. She wants the water that would, that would take and make her life easier. She is hungering and thirsting, not just physically, but more importantly, socially and spiritually. This woman's rejected. This woman's a lonely gal. She's a troubled individual. She will go towards anything that will give her a quick fix of peace and happiness in her life. Isn't it timely that Jesus met her and provided what this gal needs more than anything? And Jesus in his conversation reveals to her that he is much more than what he looks like on the outside. Some traveler, Jewish traveler that just happens to stop by. He makes it very clear to her that he knows all about her. He makes it very clear to her that he can satisfy her deepest inner desires of fulfillment and peace and happiness and joy. He makes it very clear to her that her life, in her life, it's much more than, what about this relationship right here? I want peace with somebody. Somebody. I need to have happiness with somebody. I need something. I need, I need, I need you know, more water. I need more comfortable life. And he's saying, wait a minute, there's, much, there's a much bigger picture than this life. The bigger picture is you and God. You and God, lady, you need to realize it doesn't make any difference where we're worshiping. You know, your temple or their temple. It's God and you. And he says it very clearly. God is going to be seeking for those who would worship him in truth and in spirit. Not coming and lying, but very openly, this is who I am, God. Please forgive me. And finding that peace and satisfaction in a relationship with God Almighty. Then she says, well, wait a minute. I know that when Messiah comes, he's the type of guy who can tell us everything. You need to understand, the Jews and the Samaritans had different views of, of Messiah. Similar but different. The Jews' Messiah was the idea of a ruler that we're going to give answers to, who's going to take over everything. The Samaritans had the idea of the Messiah. He would come and restore. He would give that which was lost in the Garden of Eden. He would give peace and happiness and joy and a relationship. So they're similar but they're different. Jesus says, and this is the only time you'll find it in the gospel, so clearly stated, I'm the Messiah. Usually his response is, well, if that's what you say. Or it's, it's veiled. This is the one time he says, I am he. I'm the one. 
I'm the Messiah that you talk about, that the Jews talk about, that blending it together, I can restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. I will set up a kingdom on this earth that will be forever and you can live with me. I can give you that peace. I can give you that, that what, your, what your soul is hungering for. And so what's really clear here is what Jesus does towards this woman. It's amazing. Even though she's a Samaritan, even though she's a female, and don't take that wrong, but she's basically a beast of burden in that society. Even though she's an immoral person, even though others want nothing to do with her, look at the Christ. The Messiah offers her forgiveness and peace and purpose to her life. What a gracious God. He doesn't look at her and say, you're too far gone. He doesn't look at her and say, well, if you only had three husbands, you know, but three strikes and you're out. He doesn't do that. He doesn't look and say, well, if you just had been married legally, but now you're going to live in sin. doesn't do that. He goes to this woman and he purposes to travel to that town to meet her, to give her this hope, and she accepts it. She takes it. She tries to veer the conversation elsewhere, but Jesus keeps on track saying, I am God who will help you to have a right relationship. And he gives her this offer that she gladly accepts. She finds that forgiveness. She finds that peace. She finds that purpose in life that nobody else can give. Nobody else can satisfy that hungering in her soul, but she finds it in Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful thought? She needs to come to this spot where she needs to see the big picture in life. The biggest picture. By the way, Jesus offers you and me the same thing. He offers us purpose and peace. For many people, the purpose is getting money, getting fame. And Jesus says, I've got something better for you. Something that isn't just temporary. You've all heard of this guy. Yes? No? Okay. Some of you I know he's in ancient history already. But here's this guy who became one of the greatest icons in sports history. Appeared on more magazines on the cover than any other sports figure in history to date. Muhammad Ali, known before that as Cassius Clay. Okay, so this is now his retirement years. And he's got at his home, and out in back of this one home that he built, they converted a barn to be the place where they, he'd put his trophies and his memorabilia. They didn't fix it up like you would think a trophy room should be fixed up. It was still a little bit rustic. But it was fixed up. And the reporter comes, and these are the, some of those days when Ollie is, you know, you got to listen kind of closely because he's mumbling, you know, taking all those blows to the head. It affected him, you know that. And so he's there, he's with the reporter. And they go into the barn area and they're walking through, and as they're walking through, there is one entire wall that is covered with, frame, with, with magazine covers in glass frames. And it's just all from top to bottom, all the way across. The reporter was amazed. And they walked through, and he was telling this story about this one, and this one, and this one. And then they stopped. And all he noticed that, because his barn wasn't totally secured like a typical trophy room, he noticed that some birds had got in and left their droppings that came down on a couple of these, these you know, glass frames. And he's standing there looking at it. And the reporter said something to him, and he's in his own world. He's just staring at it, just staring at it. And then he turned and he walked to the front door of the, of the barn and just looked out over the property and just staring. The reporter came up to him and asked a couple of questions and he wasn't responding. It was like he was in Never Never Land. <laughs> he was in his own little world. And then the reporter heard him say this, very clearly, audibly make this statement. He said, I once had the world, and it was nothing. He had popularity. He had riches. He had fame. And the birds drop on it. It's nothing. This woman was looking for something that would satisfy. Men, 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 men. Well, 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 water. Social acceptance. And Jesus offered her that which was everything that would last. He makes that same offer to you and me. No matter who we are, what we have done, here's what he offers. He offers forgiveness and peace and purpose to life. 
Purpose that would help you to have relationship with God Almighty that would last forever. Purpose and peace that would allow you when you stand before the Messiah that he would say, you can enter into my kingdom because you have accepted what I'm offering you for nothing. I am giving you eternal life if you believe in me. If you trust in me, if you give me your all, I will give you everything. What a deal. What a gracious God. All we need to do is repent of our sins and ask him to give us the eternal life that he purchased with his blood and his life and his resurrection. See, that's the big picture. The biggest picture of all is, do you have eternal life? The big picture is not your bank account, or how much taxes do you owe today? The biggest picture is, where will you be in 100 years from now? Where is your eternal life? That's the biggest picture. That's what he's trying to get the woman to see. She accepted it. Would you? About that time, the disciples come back. And the disciples, they've got the food. They went to town to get food. They come back and, do you remember, Jesus was hungry. Jesus was resting at the well when they left him. He wasn't game to go into town. He was taking a break. And they were going to look for the food. They come back. And when they return, Jesus has to give them the biggest picture of all. Because they're focused on food, rest, refreshment, comfort, sleep, travel, busyness. And Jesus has to say, no, wait a minute. There's a bigger picture here. The bigger picture that he talks about is down in this story. Pick up with me where they come back. Then they come, went out of the city and they were coming. In the meantime, while his disciples prayed him, they say, Master, eat. I'm in verse 31. But he said, I have meat to eat that you don't know about. Therefore said the disciples one to another, did somebody bring him food? Was there a takeout? Was there a delivery service? Jesus says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. This is the biggest picture. This is for you and me. Watch what he says. Say not ye there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields right now. For they are white right now already to harvest. He that reaps receives wages and gathers fruit unto life eternal. That's in this eternal harvest, spiritual harvest. That both he and that, that sows and he that reaps may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and you were going to enter into their labors. And about that time, then the Samaritans come back. What's he talking about here? He's not talking about the actual harvest season. He makes it clear that we've got a few more months before harvest, the physical harvest. He's not talking about the crops, the hay, the, the wheat. He's not, that's not what he's saying. He is saying in this passage, there is a bigger harvest and it is the souls of men. It's just like that idea of, I will make you fishers of... Yeah, that's the same, the same parallel. And what he's doing is he's trying to get them to realize it's people. It's people that need to be ministered to. People that need to hear my message of hope and peace. And so these guys, they're fixed. They're focused. When they come back, why is he talking to that woman? They're focused on traditions. They're focused on prejudice. They're focused on their bias. Why is he talking to this gal? She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. He shouldn't be doing that. We don't dare tell him that. He's the boss, but he shouldn't be doing that. And then they're focused on, here's food. And he says, I don't... I, it doesn't make any difference to me. This isn't what's important right now. Traditionalism and prejudice is not what's important. Food isn't what's the most important thing. I mean, right about now, your stomachs are telling you it is. And Jesus is right about this time of the day saying, guys, there's something bigger than your belly. And that whole picture is focusing on this whole idea of the big picture of seeing souls of harvesting individuals, lifting up your eyes for the harvest of souls. Now, can I make some just concluding con comments of, or uh, uh, truths taken from his comments? Here's what they are. Take what he has said here. Lift up your eyes and explaining. Here's what he is saying to them. Harvesting souls is not as difficult as most of us think it is. It's not as impossible as what we think it is. The comments of Jesus... What he makes to his disciples, who would have said, wait a minute, harvesting souls in Samaria, these people are tough. They're, they might run us out of town. 
This might be really difficult. You know, this, this giving out gospel literature, this giving out, you know, a witness to somebody, inviting them to a Bible study or to church, this, this is really hard to do. I get intimidated by it. And he's saying, it's not that bad, guys. It's not, now, now, he makes a comment where he's saying that there's toil involved and laboring involved. He uses those words that we enter into another person's labor or toil. There is work. It is some effort, but it's not as impossible and difficult as what we often make it to believe. He says there are people ready for, to be harvested right now. There are individuals ready to respond, and he tells them they are white under the harvest, not the crops, but the heads of the people, the hearts of the people. And he says that the co-workers, the people that you don't expect sometimes, the Samaritans, the ones that you wouldn't have anything to do with, they might be the very ones ready for the gospel. And he's making it clear to them that God is at work at this moment. That God is, you remember, the Lord is not willing that any should perish. Do you remember, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save. That was his loss. That's his effort. That's, do you remember what he said? He says that, he tells them, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I... It's not that hard. He's saying, I'm going to help you. God is going to be... God is already working. We just need to do the job. Number two, harvesting souls is for right now, right here. That's what he's telling the guys. The guys have been ministering down in Judea. They were helping him to see people get baptized who were repenting. And they're headed for Galilee. And he wants them to get this message. It's not for tomorrow when we get to Galilee or next week. It's not for just Judea. It's right here where you least expect it, where, where we're walking through and you don't think they're going to respond, where you don't think that they, they want to hear. They will. He says, it's right here, right now. This is the moment. Lift up your eyes right now, right here, guys, is what he's telling them. He's telling them that we have the chance to reap some souls right now. Do it. Don't wait till later. Don't wait until, you know, sometime, someplace down the road. He says, right now, right now, harvesting souls. That's supposed to be happening right now. Young man, Christopher Cersei, you probably remember this, some of you. There was a whole bill passed in Congress to make sure that things changed after his case. Teenage boys out playing basketball with his friends. And as they're playing, all of a sudden what happens is there's a drive-by shooting. And he becomes a victim of the gunshot. It pierced his chest. He falls down. His friends pick him up. They load him in a car and they, or, I'm sorry, they, they pick him up and they carry him towards the nearest hospital that they're headed for. And as they get to the hospital, they are totally exhausted. And they can't go any further. And so they've got him like from here to the first row of cars parked outside. And they run inside and they tell the people, there's a gunshot victim. He's laying out here in the parking lot. And somebody's got to come out and help him. The hospital leaders and officials, they even get several who come. They say, we can't go and render any type of aid outside the doors of the emergency room. We're not allowed because of the insurance companies. So the boy's laying out there bleeding. The, the, one of the police officers who's there for security thinks it's absolutely ridiculous. He gets a wheelchair. He goes out. He loads the boy, brings him in, and then they administer. But in that period of time, it's too late. It caused a national outrage. It caused bills to be changed by law that, that says you've got to minister when they're within a reasonable distance. And by the way, we find it absolutely appalling that none of them would walk out and the insurance company would be that way and we say, shame on them. Shame on us who will not go and take the gospel outside the doors of our building. We will pro proclaim the name of Christ to the lights, to the ceiling. We will sing about him, we will rejoice in him, and we will congratulate each other that we have gotten saved. But do you take it out with you? Will you go and minister to somebody who's beyond the confines of this property? That's what he's telling them. He's telling them, guys, go outside your normal territory. Be, be burdened for people. Not just within the element of what you're used to, 
But look around. There are people willing and wanting to get saved because I've been working, I'm wooing them. You need to tell them, you need to go to them. Right now, right here he says, harvesting souls should be done without any form of bias or prejudice. It should go beyond who's like me. Who's my age? Who's my economic status? Who's my race? Who speaks like me? Who has hair like mine? And you know, you look and say, I'm glad I don't. Okay. And I'm glad you don't either. But we get so caught up with this at times that we want to make sure we share the gospel with people that we find acceptable who are like us. That's good. I'm glad you want to f- share the gospel with people who are acceptable. But what about the unacceptable? What about the people who aren't like you? Aren't you glad that somebody, somebody didn't have that thought when they shared the gospel with you? Or you may have never heard. I would have never heard. And Jesus says to the disciples very simply, he says, hey, wait a minute. I need to be concerned, and so do you, about anyone who might be socially unacceptable, who might be what others would consider too immoral, to be forgiven, who might be of a different ethnic group, he reached out to her. And he's saying, you guys need to reach out too. In fact, lift up your eyes. Look what's happening. The fields are white. Maybe what he's referring to is the white turbans because historically the Samaritans wore white turbans. And maybe he's looking down the road and he's seeing this whole group of men coming out of the city and that's the white unto the harvest he's referring to. And he's saying, you and I don't need to run from those people. We need to run to those people. And we need to share with them. We need to talk with them. Fanny Crosby, ever hear of her? Hymn writer, blind lady. She wrote a lot of hymns. But she was also very burdened for individuals. She who was blind would frequently go down to the nearby street mission. And she would share her testimony, or she would sit in the back, and after the preacher is done, she would go from seat to seat where she could figure out where somebody was sitting and sit down and talk to the young men or young ladies. When she was asked years later, where did you come up with, when did you pen the words to rescue the perishing? She said she remembers clearly. She went to that mission service, and after the service... She followed her hearing to about halfway down where a young man was sitting there and he was talking to himself. She figured he was in his early 20s. She sat next to him after he gave permission and she said, did you hear what he, the preacher said? Yes, I did. But he said, I am too wicked. I am too far gone. And she talked with him. She found out that he had a mother who on her deathbed had pled with him to repent of his sins and ask Christ to be his Savior. And that mother said, I want to see you in heaven with me. And he said, I had told my mother, I will respond. I will live for God eventually, and I will meet you in heaven. And he started sobbing. He said, I lied to her. I am so wicked, there's no way I'm going to get into heaven anymore. I'm too far gone. And Fanny Crosby, years later recalled, she said, I shared with him the story of the woman at the well. How that one who was socially rejected and who nobody wanted to do with, Jesus offered her complete forgiveness. She said he prayed and got saved that night. She said, I went home and I thought about the need to rescue the perishing. And she penned the words the next day. Without bias, without prejudice. Maybe, maybe we need a little bit of her blindness externally to see people. Harvesting souls is something any and all saints, you, all of us, can and should be doing. It's something all of us can be doing. Jesus, in the text that I read, he uses terms like this when he's talking. He's, t- you know, he's talking and saying that, you know, lift up your eyes, look. And by the way, do you know what happened? Look at, look at the story. It says in verse 39, Many of the Samaritans of the city believed on him for the saying of the woman. She, she, here she is. She's a baby Christian. She just got saved, and she's bringing some to Jesus. Here they are, disciples, who don't know much of anything. They're still in their first year of of Bible college, first year of seminary, first few months of it. They don't have all the theology yet, and even by the end, they still don't have their theology. It's going to take a long time. And he says to them, listen, listen, guys, 
You need to lift up your eyes. You need, you need to be looking. Even though they have done it in the past. They were just in Judea. They were busy down there for several weeks baptizing and getting people to follow into that kingdom of God. He says to them, this is something anyone can do. He that. Those who labor. They join in some sowing and some reaping. No matter who you are, what age you are spiritually, no matter, no matter what you've done in the past, you're supposed to be involved with harvesting the souls. Timothy Stackpole is New York firefighter. He became famous back in the 90s because he went into a building to rescue somebody, and when he went into the building to rescue, he was injured. He rescued the person, but he became injured, severely burned. It took him weeks, months, up to a year to recuperate. And then his co-workers told him, retire. You've done enough, retire. Live on the pension that they're offering you. Some of his own relatives said, you've done enough, retire. But he had a passion. A passion that was designed to do what he really wanted to do. Help people from this tragedy of fire. He came back. Despite his disability, he passed all the, the physical requirements and re-entered into the force and was promoted to captain. He headed up one of the first squads that went into the buildings on 9-11. He never came out. He gave his life because of a passion. Despite what he had done in the past, he still had that passion. Despite what you have done in the past, despite the teaching you have done, you need to have a passion to rescue people. To rescue that harvest of souls. Harvesting of souls can be done by simply telling others what the Lord has done for you. It's not this difficult. Many of the Samaritans believed we read. They believed because it says, she had testified saying, he told me all that I ever did. There's a whole lot more theology that they would need to learn, but Jesus would explain. She told him what he had done for her, what he meant to her. She just shared her testimony so simply, and it worked. In fact, it is so clear it is so clear in this text that the idea of her sharing with it that, it, in fact, it's stated twice. Verse 29, verse 39. That this is all that she said. She just said, he told me all things that I did. And then look at how it works. It says, many of the Samaritans came out believing on him because of the woman. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. He abode two more days. And many more believed because of his own words and said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of your saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. One of the few times it shows up in the gospel. The Savior of where? The Samaritans get it. The Savior of the world. The disciples didn't get it because they kept on thinking the Savior of us. We celebrate the Savior of us. We're so excited that we're saved. And he's saying, lift up your eyes, lift up your eyes, lift up your eyes. I'm the Savior of the world. Not just your world, but the whole world. And I want it shared. I want it told. Years ago, there's a lawyer in the Midwest. This lawyer is not a believer. And he goes to deal some business between legal business with a real good Christian friend. The Christian friend had been in a church service the day before. And in the church service, the preacher had preached on seeking souls of men, lifting up your eyes, sharing the truth. And though they had been friends and had been doing business for years, the Christian businessman had never talked to the lawyer about his soul, had never asked him about being born again, had never invited him to come and study the Bible, to come to church with him. But he was burdened. He was going to change. And so at the end of the conversation, with all that boldness that made him tremble, the businessman says to him, he says, hey, can I ask you a question? I know you aren't, you, you've, you know, don't go to church, things like that. Why haven't you ever become a Christian? I've heard that others have talked to you about it, but why haven't you become a Christian? And the, the lawyer scoffed and just said, well, I know enough Bible that people who drink like I do, they don't go to heaven. And the Christian businessman, out of compassion and concern, said, well, wait a minute. 
Yeah, if you say you know the Bible, then you know that Jesus Christ does forgive any and all sins. And he talked about the thief on the cross. He talked about the woman at the well. So why haven't you ever truly become a Christian? After listening to it all, the Christian businessman hung his head, and he, or the lawyer hung his head, and he said, do you want to know the real reason why? The real reason why I haven't ever become a Christian? I don't know how. And nobody before this moment has ever showed me how. Nobody has ever asked me. Nobody has ever shared with me. He prayed and got saved. He made an impact. Then when he got saved, started studying the Bible. Any of you ever hear of Schofield before? He got saved at this moment because finally somebody talked to him. Somebody cared enough to ask him, to share with him. Harvesting souls will be rewarding in this life and the next. That's what Jesus says. Jesus reveals it real clearly. If you get involved with harvesting souls, here's what happens. He says, in my life, I am refreshed physically and spiritually by getting involved with this ministry. How do I know that? He stops at the well because he is thirsty. He needs to be refreshed. They're hungry. The men make a trip into town to get the food. But when they come back... There is no indication that Jesus ever drank the water. There is no indication that Jesus takes the food. He says to the man, my meat, what nourishes me is to do the will of God. And they say, did somebody bring food? And he tells them, no, it's not food, physical food. If you want real nourishment, if you want real satisfaction, it's found in serving and doing what God has told us to do. Getting out the gospel. Sharing the word of God. Now that doesn't mean we should never eat or drink. Man, of days we wouldn't be good Baptists if we didn't have good meals. Okay? Because all the, the potlucks we do. The point is, there is something real about this. When you get busy doing Bible study, it is amazing how much time flies by. It is amazing when you get involved sharing the gospel, you can bypass the entire meal and you sit there afterwards and go, I didn't eat, but that sure was fun. That's what he's telling them. He's telling them, talking, there's a refreshing. And he says to them, you want real joy as a believer? You want real joy? He says, share me. Share me and look into verse 36. If you read it again, he talks about that you may rejoice together. There is real joy over hearing about somebody getting saved that you had a part in. By praying them, by, by paying some monies to help to hear, for them to hear or to read, by getting involved with, with doing some sowing and some, some type of watering, and then they get saved, and you rejoice in that. And he says there's future rewards. He mentions that in verse 36 and 38. Look at how he talks about that idea that you're going to be rewarded, he says. You receive the wages the gathering fruit unto life eternal, the idea that there's going to be benefits, we call them the crowns from other passages. But best of all, souls are rescued. And when one soul is rescued, the angels in heaven rejoice. story about Dr. Howard Hendricks. You ever hear of him? He was a professor, Bible professor down south. He tells the true story of how he got saved as a teenager because somebody invited him to church to Sunday school. He got saved, and then his mother got saved, and they were really concerned about his dad, who was a military man, an officer in the military. They would talk to him, but he was a self-made man. I will take care of this later. I'll do this later. I'll make things right between me and God. Put off, put off, put off. Hendricks ends up going through a number of years of training when he's after high school, college, seminary, and his doctoral program. He's still teaching. And he came across one of his former students. And in his conversation with his former student, he made comment to them that, you know, he's still praying about his dad who has yet to get saved. Well, this former student that, you know, that had had him in a couple classes is back in his hometown area, which happens to be the same town his dad now, uh, Hendrick's dad lives in. And he was driving the church bus one day to kids to an activity, dropped the kids off, and as he comes up to a stop sign, he looks and sees this guy, you know, standing by the stop sign. Jim, you're just right there. You got it right for this moment. He looks down at this guy and goes, he must be Howard Hendrick's twin brother with a few more years. He decided he would just get out 
stepped down, said, Sir, I'm, this is a weird question, but do you know Howard Hendricks by chance? And he said, um, he, Which one? What do you mean? He says, He's a teacher, a seminary professor. He says, Yeah, that's my son. So he meets George Hendricks. He says, Hey, can we get together sometime for a cup of coffee? And Mr. Hendricks, I guess so. So he makes an appointment and it starts a friendship that for the next several months, they get together once a week, they have coffee. The preacher says, I very seldom talked. I'd ask him a question, he'd tell me war stories. He'd tell me military stories. He was just this man who dominated every conversation. But he said that went on for months and months and months and I'd visit him weekly. Then I found out he was in the hospital. They found out that he has you know, cancer and he said he couldn't make our appointments after a while so I visited him at his house. And he said, I went to his house and visited him and said, hey listen George, all these months you have done all the talking. Today is my turn. Next week I'm headed for a trip to the Holy Lands. I don't know if I'm going to get another opportunity to see you or to talk like this. Today you owe me one because I've listened to you. Hendricks laughed and said, yeah, you're right, so I'll listen. He explained the gospel again. He invited him to get saved. You're going to die. You need to be born again. Mr. Hendricks bowed his head and got saved. In his illness, he gathered the strength to get out of his bed after he prayed and to salute heaven. And he says, I now have a new commander-in-chief. He didn't survive very long, but he's rescued from damnation because somebody shared with him. That's what this is about. This is about sharing the truth. What do we do with all this? Oh, it's real simple. You get the biggest picture of your life. For some of you, the big picture is this. You need to get saved. If you've never gotten saved, that's the big picture. The big picture is asking Christ to be your Savior today. In a few moments when we have a quiet moment, our staff are going to go through those doors right there, stand in that hallway. They will gladly take any one of you down that hall and show you from the Bible what you need to do this day to get salvation forever and ever and ever. That's a big picture for some. For the majority sitting here, this is the biggest picture. Most of you are born again. You've accepted Christ at some service. You already talked to somebody. The big picture is looking at people, not just the things. Not just the crockpots. Not just the house and the gardens. Not just the floods we're going to have the next few days. Not just the possible snow showers on Tuesday. We're supposed to get the big picture, and that's people. And we look at people, not just what they do, We need to look beyond not just the way they look. We need to see them as souls. Individuals who need Christ. Who are either going to heaven or hell and we can make the difference by telling them about Christ. The big picture is sharing with them. Talking with them. Letting them know. Taking the opportunities we have to share the truth with them. Now, you're going to have an opportunity this week for some of you. This week, starting Wednesday night, there's an evangelistic Bible study open to any who are lost that you might bring if you're unsure how to share with them. It'll be held upstairs in the upper room while the kids' ministries are going on. You can bring a friend. You can go with them to this evangelistic Bible study that'll last a few weeks, and they'll hear a clear gospel presentation week after week after week. You can take tracks. You can invite them to the church services. You can share what Christ has done for you. Look for the opportunities. You need to increase your ability, your skill to talk. Then join in here on Wednesday nights. What I'm going to do in the auditorium the next few Wednesday nights is talk about how to evangelize. I want to give you a video series and walk you through it that you could use for evangelizing friends and neighbors to give you that wherewithal, those tools to be able to do it. But the idea is to look, lift up your eyes. But Some of us need to really hone some skills, not like this guy. This guy in the church was so zealous, his preacher said, he was so zealous to witness and to share the gospel. He worked as a barber. And he would do this a couple times every year, and then he'd say, maybe I should do something different. He'd get the guy in the chair, he'd come up to him with the knife and say, hey, are you ready to meet your maker? That's not the best way. He lost customers. You know, they didn't really listen. Hone your skills. Hone your skills, but share the truth. Here's the bottom line. 
This is the biggest picture. The biggest picture is sharing the gospel, letting people know. 49, John Currier commits murder. Accidental, he claimed. So he gets in jail for a period of time. After a period of time in Tennessee, what they did is they would allow some model prisoners out and they would work in farms, live at these farms nearby the prison. They'd work there and they were being indentured servants. He was put on this work farm. He was there for a number of years, working there, living there. The farmer got free labor. Well, the other inmates that were there, they died off after a period of time, but Currier worked there and worked there and worked there. And uh, somebody took, a newspaper reporter took interest in his case, did some research, presented new evidence, and they did a trial without him being present, and his sentence was commuted. They sent the letter to the farmer that he was now a freed man. The farmer opted not to share the letter. It was cheaper to have the free labor. The farmer passed away. The son took over the farm. Courier is working there multiple years after the letter was delivered. Finally, somebody in the system realized they still have this going on. They come to the farm. They ask if they've got the letter. They can show the registered letter. And, the, and that family kept the message of freedom from Courier for 15 years. Are you appalled by that? You may have kept the message of freedom from some classmates, co-workers, neighbors. So before you cast stones at that family, have you been holding back the message of freedom to others?